At the end of October, the New York Times ran a series of articles in their style section for some reason on kids, parents, and screen time. Oi, screen time. It looked at trends among parents largely around the Silicon Valley in California. And while I don't want to tell you what the articles were about from my opinion, because you should read them for yourself, they situated the stories in such a way that, well, my hackles went up. It isn't that often that I do a straight expert interview, and honestly, I don't think there is such a thing exactly. We talk about this in the episode, when it comes to kids and screens. But when I read Anya Kamenetz's response in the Columbia Journalism Review titled, What the Times Got Wrong About Kids and Phones, I had to reach out and see if she'd be willing to talk. I think her perspective on this issue is extremely important. Anya Kamenetz is NPR's lead education blogger. She joined NPR in 2014, working as part of a new initiative to coordinate on-air and online coverage of learning. Kamenetz is the author of several books. Her latest is The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. It's worth noting that in addition to the rock stardom above, she's a parent and someone who admittedly is dealing with the stuff in real time. If you take nothing else from this episode, if you don't read her book or the many links that I drop in the show notes for this episode, available on our Facebook page, Facebook slash No Such Thing Podcast. Pretty please, use your instincts as a parent. Consult educators and specialists who know technology on this topic. Talk with doctors who really want to dig in about what fears are real and which are not. Take the time to do your homework and make a plan that fits what each of you are looking for to achieve in your home, in your classroom, or with the young people you serve, wherever it is. And talk to the young people in your life. Preaching tech abstinence comes from a good place. We want children safe and productive, but don't be suckered by the temptation to conflate all that's changing for us culturally. Don't trust non-expert voices because they seem elite, and don't miss out on all that there is in the upside. Enjoy the episode. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Anya, thank you so much for joining the show. I am really, really thrilled to have you here. Um, when I read your piece in uh, Columbia Journalism Review, uh, which was titled What the Times Got Wrong About Kids and Phones, I have to say I was... There has been so much, um, a lot written and a lot of media on, on screen time, uh, but but also it's kind of a constant conversation for me between um, fellow uh, parents who mm-hmm. constantly have these questions, as I'm sure they do for you, and um, and educators who are are constantly trying to figure out um, what the the magic sauce looks like. So, um, I thought that your article, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes, um, in addition to us talking about it during the show, um, is, is just a really important, um, perspective on this whole thing and really rounds out a series of articles in the New York times last week, which I want to, I want to reference by name just so that, uh, we've done that. So, um, there is a, a, um, 
three articles appeared on October 26th, uh, mm-hmm. and I will list them all in the show notes. But uh, there were three articles that really focused on screen time and uh, telling a story that, as as you described, the hook was really about uh, the people who know the most about tech are the ones who want the least tech for their kids. Right. Right. Um, And you wrote really beautifully, I thought, uh, but as juicy as the setup of these pieces was, I see them as howling missed opportunities. They were lacking relevant research. They drew misleading conclusions. And some of the anecdotal evidence they cited contradicted the central hooks of the stories. So for starters, um, can you (laughs) say more about what was missing from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny position to be in because I I didn't... um, I don't make a habit of sort of critiquing other journalists work. I don't think that's always the most productive way to go about things, but yet I found myself in a situation where I got literally like text messages from people being like, are you going to take this on? Like, you have to respond to this Anya. Um, I don't have time to do it. You should do it. So I did feel sort of, um, uh, kind of like I, there's a community of people I think that that had a certain reaction to those stories because they're close to these questions about digital media and its role in children's lives and also um, people I think that are interested in children's autonomy and young people's autonomy which is not something that we think about very much I think in the in the United States when we're talking about what's best for kids there's a extremely paternalistic attitude. Um, so, so thinking about, thinking about these issues from that perspective, like, well, I'm sort of uniquely positioned because I am in the media to, uh, to, to marshal the, the arguments and the evidence to bear on these questions. And, uh, that's what I, I did in the story. And, and I did feel like people's reaction was, was good. I was happy that, that, that this side was, this side was out there. Uh, one of the things I wanted to be careful of is, um, is sort of describing you as an expert on screen time, right? Because right. Um, while you've written this this um, this book, The Art of Screen Time, uh, mm-hmm. How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life, that was uh, published last year and and really got some terrific response. Um, Thanks. It was out. It was out this year, actually, in January, twenty eighteen. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I'm. I'm already thinking that we are I like, know. in 2019 <laughs> um, <laughs> last school year. Um, yeah. I think what's important for people listening is, is um, to, to know, and I say this all the time uh, that there is um, there's expertise. Um, and, and, but with a topic like screen time, there's also a lot of sort of common sense that we're ignoring and a lot of, um, uh, a lot of s- sort of societal topics that are being ignored and sort of conflated and 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 these kinds of things. So while I, I do want to talk about your book, at the same time, I don't want to hold you up as as the authority on screen time, because I think that sort of a central premise of it is um, that we probably know more more than we're letting on and we're probably yeah. scared um scared into thinking that we don't know as much as we should um mm-hmm. does, does that sound right yeah i i do think that's right and and what i aim to do with the really give parents and teachers some you know a set of heuristics a set of rules of thumb for thinking about 
the issues and maybe draw their attention to some aspects that they might not have considered as much. But certainly I think that, you know, we don't need to be disempowered by the thought that this is sort of something that is invisible or highly technical or impossible to understand. I think we all have the ability to, you know, to parse what's happening with digital media because it it is so familiar. I mean, it's in all of our daily lives. That's kind of the point. So figuring out what's best for our kids, a lot of that involves kind of, I I really just advocate being curious, paying attention to what your kids are doing, being involved with them in in their digital pursuits. And so, yes, uh, it is not about me or anyone else telling you what to do. Yeah. And I think, I think that that's, that's part of what upset me a little bit about the times um, the sort of stance in these three pieces that were published in, um, in October, right. Is, so when I, this is, is not scientific by any means, but just out of curiosity, I did a Google trends search, right. For the, the term screen time. And the two Mm. big, big spikes were, um, not since 2014, which happens to be the year that um, the American Academy of Pediatrics did publish that the uh, the piece that they did on on uh, you know the young people's eyes and whether screen time was right. was bothering people's eyes. It also was the year that they that the Times published that piece on how um, Steve Jobs was a low tech parent. Um, right. And then you flash forward to October this year, and ag- again the message is kind of. Um, you know, look at these well-educated Silicon Valley parents who know so much about the machine that they won't let their kids near it. Um, and it was upsetting because it, it felt like it, it dropped so many, so much dimension and so much nuance out of, um, out of this conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so we'll get into that, but, but I think that the question that I get the most is, how much time, right, it should my kids be spending on screens? And mm-hmm. um, so one of the things I, I wanted to ask you is um, not how much time, because <laughs> we know that that's a, that's a nuanced thing. But um, I'm curious what you feel, what else are we missing when we obsess over time spent? So there are some contexts where time is absolutely the right metric. If you're talking about sleep or physical activity or eyesight, these are things when it really is about, you know, the physical posture of your body and and where your eyes are directed. And so it does not matter what's happening within the two dimensions of the screen. Um, However, there's so much else to our interactions with digital media. I mean, these are, these are these magical devices that do a thousand different things. And so it very much matters you know, um, whether you are, you know, let's just look at playing video games, right? Like inside the, inside the world of what is a video game, you could be building, you could be, you know, working on architecture, you could be uh, doing, telling a story and doing a narrative game. You could be uh, mainly engaging in the chat. Um, and that chat could be very positive, or it could be extremely terrifying and neg- negative. Um, you could be doing, obviously, people think about the violence, um, you could be doing, very sophisticated role play that involves game theory or fantasy worlds. And that's just, you know, that's just video games, right? So that's, that's one category. Then you could be coding, you could be writing, you could be doing video audio production, you could be doing Photoshop. Um, So it, it goes on and on. And I think our failure to kind of reckon with the vast, 
kinds of digital interaction that we all know intimately because we all do it as adults, you know, at least to some extent. I mean, every single time I give a presentation, I ask if there's anyone who doesn't use a smartphone or a computer in their daily work. Mm. And it rarely happens that someone raises their hand and says, yes, I don't have a a day-to-day need for it um, in my work. Uh, I've had like one chef, I've had a few, um, you know, home healthcare aides and that type of thing. But but really, if you're going to be a professional, if you're going to be an educated person, you're going to use digital media in a vast variety of ways. And that's what we're kind of not reckoning with when we talk about kids and the impact on them. Yeah. You write in your piece, um, there are, and, and I'll stop quoting at some point, but there were a few, <laughs> there were a few <laughs> passages that I, I thought were um, really important to this conversation. Uh, you say at one point... Um, Parents with means are the ones who have the most resources to eschew media in favor of activities perceived as being of higher value, like uh, by hiring nannies to occupy their children's time uh, practice with one of those stories um, from the Times. Um, and this is so right, and it's a really important um, it's a really important issue. One of the things that um, I talk a lot about in uh, my work in the, and that we we deal with at uh, at Mouse and on a policy level in K twelve is that um, there's also there's this enrichment gap right so um, if you look at what what families of means are spending on their kids um, in in contexts like after school. Um, it's like an eight to $10,000 difference per child. Um, this is, this is really huge. Um, so, so there's a cost to less screen time and, um, but you know, the matter of, uh, less alone time is, is really complex and, and this has been around a really long time. So one of the things, um, I wanted. I know that your your book addresses, and that I wanted to speak to a little bit is uh, one of the things I hear a ton from even from super um, you know savvy educators who really know their stuff. Um, will will say you know remember when we were kids and parents were spending so much more time with their kids? Um, isn't that the problem? Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> right. One of the things, the sort of, um, I was, as I was preparing for our conversation, I was thinking a little bit about kind of this, the speed of technology, right? And I was trying to, I, I was trying to come up with an analogy, but it's almost like, um, I was thinking about, um, Moore's law. Uh, you remember that one, right? And, and like the idea was that, uh, what was it that um, processor speeds and computers would, would double every two years. Right. Am I accurate on that? Um, yeah. Um, and, and so my, my point in that um, somebody can, can uh, write in and, and give us all the links to Moore's law that I just, uh, you know, where I broke the definition, but um my point to that is a lot of the parents that I talk to when we have, uh, you know, we have friends over and folks bring it up all the time. And um, I feel like people feel like their parenting skills, right, that there are a, a bunch of like, you know, skills and, and competencies for us as parents that need to be doubling the way that um, <laughs> the way that technology is, you know what I mean? That, that there's a bunch yeah. of stuff out there that we don't know. Um, what do you think? Do you think that, um, you know, our, our skills as parents need to be adapting as fast as technology is? Yes and no. I mean, obviously I wrote the book because I felt like we did need some kind of guidelines. And I was hoping that out there, there would be this fast undiscovered body of research and evidence that we could use to make decisions. I didn't really find that because I found instead that there's a lot of, first of all, the field is a little bit underfunded. Um, and, and because technology is moving so fast, I mean, you can create a wonderful framework for a you know randomized controlled trial and follow people over four years. And then Oops, four years later, it's all of a sudden a you know, completely different generation of technology. Um, so it's hard from that perspective. On the other hand, you know, uh, in terms of the techniques of how we speak to our children and uh, seek to connect with them, um, it, it doesn't have to be that complicated because the, the technologies evolve, but our values can remain the same. If we, if we kind of look at it from first principles and we say, hey, you know what? I want to have a strong bond with my child. I'm interested in their physical safety. Mm. I want them to get enough sleep, enough rest, enough social connection. Um, you know, I respect their ability and I, I expect to help to scaffold their ability to moderate their own use of, of anything that can be compulsive, um, whether that be food or alcohol or anything else. They need time to figure that out. I set limits, then I help them set limits, and eventually they set their own limits. Um, and so all of these things, there are analogs in the analog world that we need to be just really clever about how we apply them, um, whether it's a handheld device this week or next week, it's going to be VR, AR, anything else. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, we have a really solid history in Western culture of... Um demonizing uh these media um 
over time, you know, people, people always, uh, I always get into like a, a Google volley, um, with people when, <laughs> when I say things like, you know, we said this stuff about books, um, right. and somebody always has, has a, you know, like, no way we never, you know, books aren't the same. And, um, and in fact, if, yeah, if you, if you read some of that stuff that we were, we, we, you know, that we've said over time about, um, uh, what happens when, you know, young people are locking themselves in their room and reading, you know, reading who knows what, um, we really right. have, have had this, this kind of attitude for a really long time. And, I wonder the extent to which um, there there are a lot of issues at play here, right? And but one of the ones that I'm really interested in is to what extent are we still working as parents on the issue of our kids having agency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like, I, I think one of, for myself as a parent, I think one of the things I needed to check myself on most regularly is, um, is the fact that all of, all of these things present choices, right? It's no longer that there's one box in the middle of the living room and we're all sort of sharing the choice about what to, what to consume, um, my kids are making choices all the time about what to consume. And I, I wonder to what extent you feel like a big part of this is about us um, coming to terms with a, an issue that's been around for a very long time, which is this this sort of, I think you, you described it earlier as, as kind of this patriarchal uh, idea where, you know, we need to have ownership over our kids' choices. Yeah. I mean, I think the more that I delve into, and particularly the history of moral panics, um, which always tend to be about sort of teenage girls and their virtue, um, <laughs> the more I saw that there that there is a pattern here. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean that, that these concerns are to be dismissed out of hand. I mean, there's always balance um, on both sides. I was recently in a um, kind of email Bali myself uh, with a group of women that I'm on a, on a list with. And one of them was kind of venting about, you know, there was a, uh, uh, I guess, a nude scandal at her kid's high school. So a lot of the boys were collecting images from a lot of the girls. And, um, you know, and, and obviously this was a huge, you know, she was very upset uh, on behalf of the boys, on behalf of their parents, and had a lot of comments for the girls. And I was like, you know, wait a minute, maybe maybe this is empowering for them and maybe it's not just, you know, something that if it doesn't have to be shameful, um, you know, and, and so we kind of got into that, you know, where something that might be completely, you know, it might be the stuff of rumor or something else in, in the eighties or the seventies. Now it's, there's evidence for it and potentially that evidence is something that travels. And um, so some things do change, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, and other things, say the same or hopefully they change, but they change much more slowly, things like the agency of young women. So how do we kind of update our values and 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 really I think it takes a lot of delicacy to disentangle these different things, which it uh, you know, it's important to kind of stipulate that yes, you know, teenagers need some freedom. They need some room to make mistakes, for example. Um, they also hopefully you you strike that balance between protecting them from the worst consequences of those mistakes um, and also helping them understand when they can really be harmful towards others, um, which is, which is key. Um, so again, this is an, an example of 
values don't necessarily have to be updated as much as perhaps the particular tactics in light of the fact that something like digital media can can have a long life and can travel and escape the original context. Um, but it's 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 not easy. There's not one one side or the other. You know, it might be comforting to kind of revert back to um, uh, a narrative that we're all familiar with, but I, I don't think it really answers the the real hard problems that we're in right now. Yeah. I felt a little, um, really every time this comes up, but, but especially as I was, uh, as I read the, these pieces and have been thinking about this in the last month, um, I always feel a little bit like I'm in the movie Footloose, <laughs> you know, where it's like the whole time you're well, just what like, character are you, Mark? they just, Which wanna, one are you? They just want to dance, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, right. um, so, so, um, yeah, the demonizing is, is, is a thing. And, um, but I do want to come back. Uh, I, I don't want to be irresponsible in the sense that, um, I don't want to paint a picture that is all, um, is, is all, you know, uh, unicorns and rainbows. There, there are dangers, right? And, um, so, so if, if you would, from, from the research you did for the book, especially, I wonder um, what what kinds of things do you most regularly caution parents on? I went through the research and talked to dozens of experts, and I tried to rank it in my book um, on on the dimensions of how much evidence do we have, and then how serious is the harm. Yeah. Right. So uh, the, the the thing that really struck me out of everything was the evidence on sleep. Uh, because I felt that it's it's somewhat overlooked. It's it's not necessarily the sexiest. Yeah, you um, you said sleep, right? Sleep, yes, sleep. Yes. So with handheld devices in particular, but also with laptops, because they're close to our faces, there's light shining in our eyes. It it pushes your sleep time later. It makes it harder to fall asleep, harder yeah. to sleep um, deeply, and uh, you wake up more often at night, and you wake up earlier in the morning, but but groggier and tired. Mm-hmm. And this isn't especially important for kids because, uh, you know, uh, getting adequate sleep is hard anyway with, with all the uh, schedules that kids have these days. And also sleep helps consolidate memories. It's important for cognitive development. And it can also contribute to a lot of behavioral issues and even psychological issues. A kid who is underslept is essentially kind of regressed developmentally. Yeah. Um, and they have a lot of trouble tolerating frustration, for example. Me too. Um, <laughs> As do we all. Yes, that's very true. It's very true. Um, so yeah, so 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 I do harp on that a bit. Um, I think obesity is a tricky one. Um, we found that you know there's a lot of evidence, correlational evidence coming from television watching. Um, it's a little bit different in the handheld days. Um, there's some some evidence. Some people speculate that the handheld device look literally physically interferes with snacking. Mm. Um, that that you might be doing if you're um, if you're watching television, right? Um, which is a funny kind of footnote to yes. uh, how these things are right just overlooked um, uh, correlations. And then I talk to families about you know influence on mood or behavior, the influence of um, violence um, in the media, which is you know obviously the big the big fear or the big bugaboo of let's say 15, 20 years ago, you know, violent video games. Um, 
And, you know, all of it to say that in those cases, we have less evidence. It's more correlational. It's more scattered. And the best explanation for why that is uh, that I've heard is the idea that there, there may be a small proportion of the population that is particularly susceptible to uh, a sort of an un- unhealthy relationship with screens um, or being, you know, desensitized or being aggressive. Um, and those are, or, or whether it's ADHD or anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so it's more about like, you know, this is those kids poison or this is those kids allergen. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of kids might be just fine. Um, if you happen to have one of those sensitive kids, it's when you really wouldn't need to pay attention because they'll have a propensity to want more of it. Um, and yet they'll have a worse reaction to it. Hmm. Yeah. Again, so you, you said something earlier, um, the phrase you used, I think was correlative data. Right. And, and I, yeah. I think that's a really, really, really important distinction to make in this conversation, right. Is that, uh, the difference between correlation and causation, right. Which, which, um, was like when, um, back when I had to do, uh, my first set of any kind of, uh, or coordinate any kind of education research, um, this was like one Oh one, right. Uh, it's like the things that we can say definitively versus the things that are like, Hmm, you know, that's an interesting connection. Um, that's really important. Yeah. And, and I just want to, I just want to stay there for a second. And, and can you say a tiny bit more about that? Right. And, and maybe, maybe the way to do that is to talk about what the experts who you talk to, um, what do we know? Yeah. Great question. Okay. So, um, so let's look at violence in the media, for example. Um, there is, so overall, you might find that uh, there's more violent media consumption amongst kids who then get a record for fighting or they're involved in youth violence. Yeah. And the, the correlational arrows are so multiple because maybe they have a propensity, maybe they're simply not as, um, they're not as supervised, right? Um, so they're, no one is watching to see if they, they watch an R-rated movie or a, a PG-rated movie. Maybe they are, uh, they have parents who like violent media because their parents are violent. And therefore, they grow up to be violent kids who also like violent media. But it, they've inherited both of those characteristics from their parents. Um, maybe they are the victims of violence which makes them want to seek cathartically violent media, which, mm. but also makes them violent people, right? Um, so those are all alternate explanations that would show you the same pattern, yeah. uh, right? However, when it comes to the case of violence in the media in particular, so, and then the other confounding aspect is the more we get these sort of implications that certain types of media or certain, for certain populations might be vulnerable or might be negative effects, you cannot do a study. It is unethical to do a study on children where you expose them to something that might be harmful. So we're, we're precluded in the future from doing studies where we randomly assign children to watch violent media. Mm. Um, however, in the 60s, there were a set of studies uh, that I talk about in the book, the famous Bobo the Clown studies, where children watched a video of a clown doll being attacked. Yeah. Yeah. And then 
they were then ushered into another room where they had the clown doll and the children who'd watched that video of that content imitated it immediately, mm. right? So there was an imitative um, effect. And so then you can say, okay, we have some causal evidence here that children will imitate what they watch. Um, and and so in, at least in some cases, there is, a, there is evidence in that one realm. Yeah, I'd like... I'd like uh... I'd like to know what we spent on that research and <laughs> I'd like to have it back. Cause I think, I think if I put, um, any single parent in the universe into a room and ask them, uh, whether kids uh, tend to mimic the behavior of other humans, um, they could have answered that question. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. I interrupted. Sure. Absolutely. No, no, no. I mean, I think that's, it informs our understanding, but yes, like a lot of sociological research, it sort of confirms yeah. people's intuitions in a lot of different ways. There was a study that came out just this week, a paper that was published um, that attacked it from another perspective, which was the, the correlation between, we see correlations now between social media use and depression mm. in large population cross-sectional surveys, right? Mm. This is this is not... and. Um, Again, it's extremely confounded because if you have a 16-year-old who's spending a quoted seven hours a day yeah. with social media, right? By definition, they don't have a lot of interests, right? By definition, they don't have close supervision. Um, so there's, there's clearly other things going on there. Um, but this study did have a causal direction in the other way where they got kids to lower or limit their exposure to social media and found then that depression symptoms improved. Mm. Um, still, there's issues. It's a small study. Uh, there's no chance for a control group in that situation. You know that you're in the treatment category. So it could be that examining your emotional state would, um, you know, would it tend to improve it in a lot of situations. Yeah. So it's not a perfect idea, but this, all of this to me, I mean, I have great sympathy for the researchers because they are trying to yep. tell us things that we're desperate to hear about with, uh, with, with not a lot of, to go on. And certainly they don't have infinite resources either to do independent research. Amen. 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 For sure. Brings us back to these articles, right? Brings me back yeah. to these articles. Um, so there were three and, and, uh, um, people should go and, and read them and, and judge for themselves. But I want to, I want to just focus on, uh, one, um, the title was, um, a dark consensus about screens and kids begins to emerge in Silicon Valley. Um, right. and there was, uh, <laughs> there were some great, there were some amazing like quotes pulled from this thing, but, uh, I am convinced the devil lives in our phones. Um, right. you know, and, and there were <laughs> these kinds of things. Here's my question is why do I care about, um, the, you know, this, a group of parents in Silicon Valley, I get that their hook was, uh, about the, the people who know the machine best are keeping their kids away from it. But, but like, what do you think is all wrapped up in this? Like, wh <laughs> like, why have we, why have we taken this angle? Well, yeah, it's a really interesting question. So, you know, the, the story that they did in 2014 in the times that you alluded to Steve Jobs was a low tech parent. That was like a, a throwaway line from an interview that, became one of the most read stories of that year yeah. in the style section, right? And, you know, I mean, 
why are we interested in what Steve Jobs has for breakfast or, <laughs> you know, what Bill Gates, what kind of clothes he wears or what he's reading, you know, which he publishes every year. Uh, because these are powerful titans. Um, we still have a lot of reverence for the technology industry uh, over and above, you know, your, your average billionaire. Um, so in that way, there's sort of just a status thing going on. Um, and then there's a, there's an interest in the storyline of, you know, I am afraid or ashamed of the thing that I built, or I don't want my kids to have the thing that I built. Um, but, you know, the other part about it is simply that a lot of our talk about parenting is really a status conversation, right? We have a high anxiety world. It is a high anxiety time to raise a kid. Everybody wants their kids to go to the same, you know, two colleges that have a 1% acceptance rate. And, you know, we want them to be in the competitive sports team and to learn Mandarin and all these things. And so the idea is maybe I can't be a perfect parent in A, B, or C ways, but by reading about the habits, the parenting habits of the rich and famous, or the, the modern and up-to-date, then I can perhaps approach that, at least in some ways, or at least aspire to it. Um, I think that's that's part of the thrill of, of reading a story like this. And yeah. certainly, I think what they hoped for, um, although I don't think that they in these articles. Yeah. Um, it felt a little... It, it, what did it... What, it's, it's like... Um, Man, there were so many analogies that ran through my mind. Uh, I thought about, you know, like uh, reading an article about the um, serial marketers of America and like <laughs> caring how their parent, like how, what they're feeding their kids. And it's like somebody, you know, it just feels so uh, obvious. It's like uh, people who um, <laughs> it just. It's a, um, it, it's a funny world anyway. Um, but it bring it, it, one of the points that you make that I think is, is so important when, uh, anyone who reads these articles is that, um, the, the folks who are quoted in these stories and railing on the media and talking about, um, you know, uh, let less tech being better tech. None of them were no, no media families. Right. Right. Um, which kind of brings, yeah. brings us to the, the bigger question of, um, y you know, so, so what's going on there? Like uh, uh, one, one person, uh, quoted in the article who was a, um, uh, I think he's a founder of, of geek dad and, and one of the uh, former, uh, uh, um, is he an editor at Wired? Um, yeah, he was the editor of Wired. Yeah, <laughs> yeah said something. I think he 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 uh, made a reference to uh, screens being like crack cocaine, right? Which um, and and then you made the the good point that uh, he you know his kids still get screens, which uh, <laughs> if if it was crack cocaine, it, it probably wouldn't be the case. And I I get what we're saying, but. Um, I, I wonder too, how hyperbole is kind of, is kind of keeping us from seeing, um, you mentioned heuristics earlier and, and seeing a, a deeper picture about what we can be doing as families, um, to, you know, act more deliberately when it comes to screen time and really think about, um, goals. So, so, um, I want to talk about that, you know, 
what a when for folks who are going to listen to this interview and and maybe don't get to read the whole book um what are some of the maybe you have provocative um questions or um maybe they're heuristics but a set of things for us to think about as families um from the research you did for the book that you think gives us a a sort of smarter lens on how we're thinking about this for the book i surveyed about 500 families and i continue to obviously survey families and ask them to rate themselves on how strict they thought they were on mm. screens yeah um which i thought was a really interesting because what i found was obviously some people say it, some say they're very strict some say that they're very lenient but there isn't there wasn't functionally a real pattern where families you know some families who said that they were very strict didn't actually sound that different from the families who, who said anything goes at our house. And so really it's just a rating of, you know, we, we spend a lot of time kind of judging other parents and giving the side eye in an attempt to justify our own decision-making because it really is such a, uh, it's a, there's a lot of darkness in this area. We don't really know what other families are doing and um, there aren't any, you know, the, the expert recommendations maybe aren't that clear. They're also not as, I mean, it was interesting talking to the experts, the American Academy of Pediatrics and so far, so, so on, because they really felt like, you know, they're interested in harm reduction. They don't want to come out with rules that nobody's going to follow. So they're, and they're also, they don't have the evidence that they would like to have the evidence base for saying things like, oh, you know, we think that video chat, it sure seems like it's fine, but we don't really have strong evidence one way or the other to say that it's actually very different from, you know, just watching a movie. So mm -hmm. they're making guesses based on what they think and what they see. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all of that to say that um, you don't need to invest a lot of time in, <laughs> in judging other parents' choices. I think uh, the, the, the real judge of what's working is whether it's working for your kids. Yeah. And so what I try to get parents to look at when they ask me, obviously they ask me, you know, is this, is this enough or is this too much? Is this a problem? Should I be doing this? And my answer is always like, tell me what your kid says. You know, is your kid, how are their grades? How is their sleep? How are their friendships? How is their outdoor time? You know, um, are they interested in homework? Are they interested in reading? Are there other things that they're willing to do? Is it a huge fight? Are you having meltdowns, you know, on a, on a daily basis, trying to get it away from them uh, because it's the only thing they ever want to do. Yeah. Um, and these are the, you know, so you have to make a tailor, uh, a tailored solution for your own kid. It's not about how strict you are. You don't get points for being the parent who takes it away. Um, you know, it, it's all about kind of fostering that, um, that solution, uh, because even if you have a system that's perfect when your kid's four years old, it's going to be completely different when they get, they're 14 and they have their own phones and they have social media, um, you know, and, and a totally different set of interests probably. So the only through line really is how connected are you with your kid? How interested are you in what they're interested in? And can you connect with them over, over digital media and let it be something that's a conduit into family time instead of just things that you're doing, you know, individually. Yeah, I have, I have a, um, I think that's such good advice. Um, I think there are some stories recently that, um, give me uh, some kind of interesting hope. And I think, I think, um, 
you mentioned hearing more from your kids and sort of trusting and and making that a dialogue as opposed to um, having to uh, <laughs> you know impose um, impose rules from from uh, the the sort of classic. Um, parental stance. And, and I think that that's so, so important. There was this, um, big for, for, uh, EDU nerds, especially K-12 folks who follow, um, the news. Uh, there was this story in Brooklyn this past, in the, in the past few days about a group of teens who walked out and protested, um, at a Brooklyn high school that was, was using, um, a digital platform that they argued was putting them in front of screens for too long and, and changing things about the school environment. I know you've been working on that story. Can, can you say a little bit about that? Um, the, the reason that I think that it ties is not that we know everything about this story cause, cause it's sort of, um, it's still unfolding a little bit, but, but what I think is important for us to note is that, um, oftentimes we, we, we um, think we're making the best decisions for our kids and not realizing that uh, young people are um, are invested too and have a voice and um, and are organized around some of these topics in ways that uh, we don't we don't give them enough credit for. So I'm just I'm curious what you've been hearing about this story. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, it's a really interesting developing topic. So Personalized learning is probably the biggest ed tech trend right now. Yeah. You know, the idea, and ironically, obviously, the idea is giving students more voice and choice, ultimately, as well as allowing them to learn at their own pace yeah. and using technology, right, to overcome the constraints of one-to-many teaching um, by allowing students to have their own uh, ability to navigate their lessons. Now, the program in use um, at this school in Brooklyn um, was developed originally by the Summit Public Schools, which is a pretty lauded charter school network, yeah. right, in Silicon Valley. Um, and they have had a lot of success uh, with this kind of playlist-based, you know, uh, model where the kids are sometimes learning alone, sometimes in pairs, sometimes in groups. They have mentoring sessions with the teachers. Um, and it, it's not a standalone park the kids in front of a computer program. Yeah. But the software model that they developed in-house was then kind of picked up with a lot of enthusiasm, worked on by some Facebook engineers who eventually left Facebook to go over to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, build this platform called Summit Learning, and then eventually make it uh, available to schools around the country, um, including training, including support, uh, all for free, which, you know, so far so good. It's been now adopted at about 380 schools around the country, um, and it has drawn similar protests, Mark, in many different states, Um, certainly not the majority. Um, But in a short period of time, there's already been a few schools that have dropped it or made it optional um, and in districts as well, schools and districts. And so the 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 objections of the kids in Brooklyn, I think it was notable in particular because it was a student led protest. Yeah. But you know, the objections of the kids in Brooklyn, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm parked in front of a computer all day. I miss learning from a teacher. Um, you know, there isn't enough, basically, support to make the curriculum clear to us. Um, and these are all notable and noteworthy. You know, these are not kids who are 
uh, allergic to screens or to spend time with media um, necessarily, but they are finding that this just isn't serving their needs or their interests. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, I think that kids' voices do need to be heard. You know, I think that teachers' voices and parents' voices matter when it comes to how screens are imposed um, at the school level. Um, and uh, figuring out how to implement screen time in the educational space in a way that is, you know, conducive to our highest ambitions is very difficult. And I'm sympathetic, you know, to some of the aims of, of Summit. I know Dan Kavanagh, I've been on panels and stuff with her. And um, I know that her, you know, she definitely talks the talk when it comes to what they're trying to do as far as student learning and supporting autonomy. But we know from the way the public schools tend to also often kind of develop and um, roll out technology without the, the necessary level of support. Um, or even in this case, I mean, some of the complaints were very basic that the students didn't have enough computers to go around. They didn't have enough bandwidth, literally, to do their work. So there were technical issues as well. And that's not necessarily all on the school leadership. Um, but it's complicated. There are a lot of different um, moving parts to this and making sure that student voice is centered in the in the conversation i would say is, is pretty important yeah me too um and i want to i really want to uh dare uh challenge uh, is a better word all all parents to really um you know get with your kids and and uh you know, these are things that we uh, have learned already from um, research that was done at Sesame and and through through uh, public media uh, long ago. That you know, um, and you know, some of that is about co-viewing, um, but it, it's also a matter of just making sure that what we consume is um, is part of our dialogue uh, as a family and and. Um, yeah. So, so I, I put that challenge out, um, all the time. Um, I wonder how you feel mm -hmm. about uh, people really like the food analogy, which I, I, I think is, is a, a solid one. And I was interested to see, um, in your book that, that there was that, uh, um, quote that I think, I think you had said, um, your publisher had in, sort of encouraged as a, as a, um, yep. a, a sort of Michael Pollan, um, remix. Um, but, but right. I'm curious and you can say what it is, but, but, um, I'm curious how you feel about, um, like phrases like media diet. And is that kind of the, the way we should maybe be moving as a, as a culture to think about these things? So, um, sorry, I adapted Michael Pollan's slogan to say, enjoy screens, not too much, and mostly together. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of emphasizing the connection part of the equation. Um, and yeah, I do think that the, the, the reason I think that it's a good analogy is that, you know, food, it has a purpose in our lives. It's hard, you know, you can't live without food. You can live without digital media for short periods of time, but it's certainly very integral to modern existence. And so that poses all kinds of issues. You know, if you're someone who has compulsive issues with food, it's hard because you can't be, you can't sober up from food. You have mm. to have it in your life in yeah. some way, right? You have to figure out a healthy way of relating to it. Um, and so I would say there are similar issues here uh, that on the other hand, we understand the incredible cultural power of food. It brings people together. It's a form of celebration. It's a form of connection to the natural world. 
And by the same token, media can be incredibly celebratory. It can be incredibly hopeful. It can be incredibly creative. Um, and by accentuating the positive and creating positive family rituals around both media and food, and also being models to our kids, um, we have a much better chance of inculcating these positive habits in our kids. Yeah. I think it's beautifully said. Um, I have a, before we wind up, I want to be respectful of your time. And I know, uh, I know your own kids are, uh, due home any minute. So, um, so I don't want, mm-hmm. I don't want to keep you much longer. Um, I have a, I have a story to pitch to you. I know you're not, um, you're not, you're not a publisher, but, um, this is the story I, I won't get to write, but maybe, maybe you will. Um, I, I wonder if you're looking at all at, um, at creators on YouTube. Um, and the, mm. the reason I ask is because, um, I get asked all the time, actually parents, friends who are parents, um, I hear them sort of demonizing YouTube all the time. And, and when they hear or, or come to my house and they know that my son has, um, some space to watch YouTube, um, they get really surprised by that. And, um, one of the things Mm. I, I, I talk about all the time is that I think that one of the most fascinating things that's happening, um, with, um, with, uh, user-generated content is that if you look at it, he's now nine and we've been watching YouTube together for years, um, easily six mm. years. And yeah. if, if you look at what's happened over the last five years or so, it really seems like YouTube creators are hip to the fact that um, a lot of kids my son's age are their audience and they know they're watching with Mm -hmm. parents. And what I've found is a lot of the stuff my son is watching is actually great content and it's better um, from a modeling perspective and, and what he's getting from it as far as, um, you know, behaviors and, and like what we want to put into the world. I think in a lot of cases, he's getting more from YouTube than he is, you know, if we pop on, uh, one of the big networks, um, do do you, are you thinking at all about that as, as a, uh, I don't know if it's, if you guys are doing a lot of reporting at NPR or elsewhere on, on this, but, um, but man, I, I, I want, uh, I want to introduce some nuance into how people are thinking about, uh, among the things we demonize YouTube is one of them. And, and, uh, I think that right. there's, there's richness there. Um, well, I, I agree with you. I wish, I guess my response to that is I, I am engaged in talking with YouTube and thinking with them about, you know, how they would like to promote digital well-being and think about it. Mm. And I also am aware of YouTube as a platform that children find accessible and inviting to them to learn about almost anything as well as to contribute themselves, which I think is really important. Um, And I wish that there were ways for more families to have the positive experiences that you're talking about. Um, I don't think that YouTube, you know, much less so than network television or even something like Netflix or even Amazon. It's not a set it and forget it type of deal. You do have to curate and you have to yes. follow. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's really important. Um, and a lot of parents may not be up for that or really understand how. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, to me, um, uh, it's an important space and it's important to talk about because 
we do want our kids to be able to partake in the affordances of these new worlds and not just turn them off. Yeah. Um, Anya, I am, uh, I, I will confess that when I read your, um, your article in Columbia journalism review, uh, it was an introduction for me to your work. Um, I'm, ah. I'm, I'm not a longtime fan, but I'm a new huge fan. Um, Great. and it turned me onto the book and, and, uh, I will say just from what you just said about, um, having, having conversations with folks like YouTube, um, I am so glad you're in the world doing this work and, uh, bringing this perspective, um, it is extremely important to me. It's really important to my family. I think it's, uh, I think it's also really important to the educators who listen to this podcast. So, um, thank you for that. Um, sure, thank you. Your book is called The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. Um, right. The article, What the Times Got Wrong About Kids and Phones, is in Columbia Journalism Review, and I'll link to both of those in the show notes. Anything else? Um, where can people find you and, and follow your work? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Anya1Anya. You can find me at NPR. Uh, and my website, my personal website, uh, actually I should tell you about my newsletter, which is a tiny letter. So yes. tinyletter.com slash Anya Kavanets, which I send out once a month and it's always full of interesting stuff. Awesome. I will link to that as well in the, in the show notes. Anya, thank you so much for joining and for the conversation. Thank you, Mark. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 